morning. If you're in need of a Bible this morning, there are some in the back on the entry, table in the entryway. The sermon text for this morning is Genesis 3, 14 through 21. So please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3, 14 through 21. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jolene. Well, last week we uh, wrapped up our sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah. And as Andrew talked about, it really, it kind of sets us up for Advent. It just, both of those books, especially taken together, point us towards the need for a Savior. So we are transitioning into this season of Advent. And life has just transition after transition after transition. I know I long oftentimes for just, can I have stability? Can I have like a normal rhythm without having to transition and readjust all the time? But that's just not life, uh, it doesn't seem to me. We, from the get-go, as we grow and mature, we transition. We go from milk to solid food. We transition from diapers into potty training, from crawling to walking, from being driven everywhere by our family or parents or older people, to then getting a driver's license and getting with it a little more autonomy and freedom. Some of you are going through that. Uh, Living with parents to living out on your own. For some of us, parenting children and then to having an empty nest is a huge transition. There's job transitions, there are home transitions, there are uh, habits and hobbies that oftentimes transition as we grow older. We face huge transition as people around us pass away. It's just transition and transition and transition. With each transition, it takes work and focus and diligence and often help from others. Uh, So all of this to say, with transition. Today's text has what is, uh, to me, very arguably, the greatest transition in all of human history ever. Huge, massive transition in a moment. And many transitions have an upside. It's hard for me to look at this transition in Genesis and see the entrance of sin and, and find any silver lining in it. Sins introduced into the ex- human experience, but, but mercifully, we see God entering and he didn't leave us without hope 
And so that's what we get to look at today is uh, just a tough kickoff to attend. Um, this year, our theme is the pursuit of joy. And this first one is, is joy lost. It was joy that they had, and then it's joy lost, but it is also joy restored. Next week, we have joy promised, and then we have a joy near and a joy here, joy here on Christmas Day. And then we're going to close out the year on, the, on January, or sorry, uh, December 31st, the last kind of in our sermon series uh, in, on Advent is the pursuit of joy. Like we, uh, the saying we love, pursue joy, that's part of church. So all of this joy. So let, let's pray. Please pray with me, and then we'll dig into our text a little bit for today. God, as, as Andrew said, um, we are here to celebrate your arrival. We look forward to it this season. Would you refresh our souls? Would you help us to realize and remember what your arrival means to this world and, and to each of us individually? Help us to see in your word uh, just truth and good news. Help us to see it in new ways that would refresh us, God. So would you be with us now as we study this text in Genesis? God, would you incline our hearts to you and not to prideful gain or any false motive? Would you open our eyes to see and behold wonderful things in your word? Unite our hearts to fear your name, Lord, and satisfy us with your steadfast love, we pray. Amen. Uh, last weekend, my little brother, he's five years younger, he went through one of life's greatest transitions, I think, that, that somebody could go through, which is to go to become married. And it was, it was so much fun. Um, generally, at least we hope and pray, marriages are a, a fun transition, a, a joyful transition. I think, it, I think it has been, I think it was for him and continues to be this, this first week. And I had the honor of getting to officiate the wedding and one of the texts that he chose, that he and his, his bride, his now wife, chose for their wedding was Genesis 2, which is immediately before what we read in Genesis 3. Genesis 2 is a way better text for a wedding than Genesis 3 is, like full of, full of like warmth and uh, relationship. And in Genesis 2, Adam and God are together. And... They're in relationship, just the way that God had designed it to be. If anything was needed by Adam, it was provided for already. If he was hungry, it was eat off of like any, any fruit of the trees, except for this one. He had work, but work was purely pleasurable. He got to converse with the Lord, perfect relationship. But God said in, in chapter two that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. So he created Eve. And I love the last verse in chapter 2, which is what I talked about in my little brother's ceremony. Uh, it's chapter 2, verse 25. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and unashamed on their wedding day, basically. And they stood before each other. Not At a minimum, this is, this is physically naked, but it's much more. It's emotional vulnerability, complete emotionally vulnerable psychologically they were uncovered before each other they they understood each other's motivations they were laid bare their hopes and their dreams and the expectations all of those were in view they were before each other perfectly vulnerable and unashamed of any of it they knew each other wholly they hid nothing from one another it was pure unpolluted beautiful relationship and that's how it was supposed to be 
No shame for either of them in being known. They have this perfect horizontal unity and love that's uncorrupted. There's nothing impure. And they have this perfect vertical relationship with God. In just before the, the verses that we read in chapter 3, verse 8, it says that God was walk, walking in the garden. They heard God, Adam and Eve heard God walking in the garden. And it seems reasonable to deduce that that wasn't odd. It doesn't speak to the oddity of it or how strange it was that the God was walking through the garden. It was like, oh, this is the normal stroll. They had this perfect relationship with God. They got to just converse with him and be with him. They knew him and his ways and they listened to him. They never had to wonder what he wanted from them because they weren't tempted in themselves to do anything but please him and to do as he instructed. Be who he made them to be. Adam and Eve were the truest versions of themselves, living according to God's good design. So to summarize Adam and Eve's experience, before they ate of the forbidden fruit, they had perfect relationship with their creator. They had perfect relationship with each other. It was absolute and perfected joy. And this isn't, they wanted for nothing it wasn't that they couldn't think of any improvement to their circumstance. Literally and absolutely, there was no improvement. It was perfect. Summarizing it, it, they had it perfectly. That's it. I don't think we can even adequately grasp just how blissful and truly perfect this was. Because post-fall, we can only imagine. And it's like through this blurred glass trying to make sense of something with clarity. It's, it's not possible to see it with 2020 clarity because we can only view it through our sinful lenses. But they knew it with perfect clarity. They had experienced it. Their life consisted of this perfect joy. And then Satan comes along and Adam and Eve compromised this perfect experience and they fell for the devil's clever temptation. The devil deceives Eve to eat from the forbidden tree and Adam, and then in cowardice, he's silent and then he follows suit and they sin for the first time. In chapter three, verse seven, immediately after they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Again, this is more than just physically physical nudity this is they could no longer be in front of one another uncovered they had sin had come into their experience they now were compelled to hide not just their bodies but their motivations their desires and their hearts could be covered judgmental thoughts and emotions could be concealed from one another this just affected everything i don't think i need to paint this this picture because unlike them living in perfection them living in sin. We can see that. That's, that's the only experience we know. We know our hearts all too well, corrupted by selfishness, greed, arrogance, lust, pride, idolatry. Nobody in the world, nobody in any worldview looks at the world and is like, you know, boy, I think everything is just as it's supposed to be. We hear hints of that, like, man, everything happens for a purpose. That's not the same thing. Nobody looks out at the world and goes, things are just right. This is just as it's supposed to be. We all see the brokenness and the absurdity of human actions 
even if we're more blinded to our own contributions to that in our own sin. And like those hints, we can sing with Louis Armstrong, like what a wonderful world. But that's just silver lining. We can only say it because we also know how much darkness and sorrow and betrayal and selfishness, crimes against one another, bitterness, lack of empathy and sympathy and hatred. And in our Christian vernacular, we just call that sin. It's universally accepted that, that our world is a mess. We just make the assertion that's because of sin. And that sin started with Adam and Eve in the garden with what we just read. And then as Adam and Eve are first experiencing their new reality, God steps in. He knows exactly what to do. He knows exactly what occurred. Satan had brought wreckage to his perfect design. And I love, I love that God does not just disappear. He doesn't give Adam and Eve the silent treatment. He doesn't go, go silent himself. He doesn't fume in rage. At the very beginning of this massive transition, God is right there. He's leaning in with Adam and Eve. He does have to explain the consequences of this action. There's consequences for Satan. We read those. There's consequences for Eve. We read those. There's consequences for Adam. Those consequences are all important, but I want to look at just one of them today, and that is verse 15. And in this, this one verse, God is speaking to Satan, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse, if you're into like fun church words, I can't even say it very well. I was reading it and like, hey, that's a fun word. And then I learned I was reading it totally wrong. Uh, so I was reading it in a different way. I think the way that you say it is, uh, I got to listen to Don's voice in my head. Uh, Proto-Evangelium or Proto-Evangelia. And what it means, I only bring it up because I love the meaning of it. Proto is first. Think like prototype. It's the first of them. Evangelia, evangelism. This is the first good news. That's, what, that's why it has this name to it, Proto-Evangelium. It's literally the first good news. So why exactly is this verse 15 where God is cursing Satan, why is this the first good news that we see? It's interesting to me. It doesn't first strike me as being great, but there's two things that I want to look at. One is God's lordship and leadership, I think is just great news. And the second is God's first promise. So let's start with God's lordship and leadership. God knew how he would deal with sin entering into his creation. He knew the consequences that would result if Adam and Eve ate of that fruit. He, he had created it. He knew it. He had told Adam and Eve that eating, eating it would bring about death. Death in both the way that we think about it, of no longer living and breathing, but also a spiritual death. And although it didn't immediately kill these first two humans, Adam and Eve, they didn't drop dead right there, death was introduced into their experience. People around them would now die. They themselves would now perish. But it would also bring about spiritual death, of being separated from God that they had had perfect relationship with. This separation is now in play. The giver and the sustainer of life they'd be separated from, where they had found ultimate joy. 
They had known this ultimate joy and they lost it. But this didn't catch God by surprise. This, this transition didn't catch him by surprise. The sovereignty of God, the Lord, extends even to this event, just as it extends to every event in our lives today. He not only knows what's going to happen, he controls what's going to happen. That's the degree to which we believe in God's sovereignty. It's absolute, it's ultimate, it's incomparable to anybody else's. Nowhere close. So we see his omnipresence didn't just make him aware of what the future would bring, that, that was the, that, that's present, that's reality, present reality for God. So we see in his lordship and his leadership, he immediately reacted because he knew just how to handle it. And in the Marines, they teach leadership and, and they do this with an acronym. Uh, the acronym is JJ Did Tie Buckle. If you ever want to study this. So it's to remember these, these 14 qualities that they say are important justice, judgment, dependability, integrity, decisiveness, tact, initiative, endurance, bearing, unselfishness, courage, knowledge, loyalty, and enthusiasm. According to the Marine Corps, these are the traits that every good leader exhibits, and the best leaders are able to uphold all 14 all the time. They do it well. God, in these first moments, when I just think about God's leadership, J.J. did tie buckle comes into my mind. And I filtered like God's actions through each one of those and just went, man, that is perfect leadership. He embodies, he exhibits all 14 of these perfectly. We see God's lordship and leadership and it's good news. It's good news that we have a God like this that will lean in with us at the very first moments of sin. And he continues to lean in with us in our sinful moments and our sinful world. So we see the, the lordship and the leadership. We also see the first promise of salvation. This promise is slightly veiled. So I want to look closely at it so that we can behold the promise. So the first half of this verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and your offspring and her offspring. God says he will put enmity there between Satan and Eve. So where once there was not enmity, God is going to place this enmity he intentionally plants hostility between Satan and Eve. Prior to this, Satan had slithered up to Adam and Eve, and they weren't suspicious of what he was saying. That would no longer be the case. Do you see the grace from God in this? No longer will Adam and Eve or us, we don't have to be pushovers to Satan's temptations like they were with the fruit. There's suspicion, there's hostility, there's bad blood between them. We can be on the lookout. Eve can be on the lookout for the schemes of the devil. This new enmity would be passed along to every generation following Eve, including us, so that we can hate the schemes of the devil. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. He is the father of lies. That's what the Bible has to say about Satan. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your, firm in your faith. So there's enmity between Eve and Satan and, and us as well. God created and gave this enmity to us as a mercy for us. But there is a double meaning 
to offspring here. Just as offspring can mean one child or many children, uh, the original language, the original word also had this double meaning of singular or plural, just like sheep. It can be one sheep or it can be a flock of sheep. I've been, we've been looking at, I've been talking about the plurality of this word. There's also a singular meaning to Eve's offspring. This singular meaning is why this verse is the proto-evangelium. This is where we see the first hint of God's promise to provide a solution to the fall. There's enmity between Satan and all of us, yes, but between Satan and one person. One in particular, one seed that is more targeted to God's words here that he's speaking in verse 15 than all the other offspring that are stemming from Eve. There's the promise of one to come. It's a foreshadowing of the Savior. The first of many prophecies about him, it says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This one shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice the difference. One's an injury to the head and one's an injury to the heel. One will hobble and the other will be a crushing mortal wound. So it's a bit veiled, but it's clear that from the very first moment following the fall, God had his eyes on undoing what had just been done. He knew that he would bring about justice and restoration through one. This wasn't an uncaring, vengeful moment or rage from God. This is grace-filled. This moment of promise, his justice, his justice, his judgment, his bearing, his knowledge, his unselfishness, all of those qualities on every marker of leadership, every, no matter what, what uh, Marines or any other entity can prescribe, it's fulfilled perfectly by the Lord in that moment, right at the beginning. And whispering between the lines of this story in Genesis, we hear God's quiet assurance. It won't always be like this. I will send a savior to you. Adam and Eve were transitioning. Everything that they'd known, this perfection is gone. God's just there. It's not going to be like this forever. I've got you. I won't leave you like this. The consequences of their sin was significant or severe, but there's promise. It's a promise of solution and salvation in that very first moment of greatest transition humans have ever experienced. It's a promise that that we still remember in Advent and we celebrated Christmas. Not sure what's going on with my iPad. I might have lost my notes. Good news. So we remember uh, during Advent the already and the not yet. We, we know that we live on this side of Jesus' coming. He's already come. So we celebrate his birth because it changed everything. We're not awaiting salvation. We get it. We have it. It's secured for us in Christ's lordship. But we also recognize there's, we are in the not yet. The story is not yet fully played out. Jesus, his heel has been stricken by Satan. He was hobbled. Yes, he was crucified. But then he defeated death. And it was not a mortal wound. God rose again victorious from the grave. 
And now Satan still has some authority on earth. Just as surely now as in those first moments, however, we know that the end is written. We have the end of the story. The Savior will persevere. The devil will be defeated. According to Revelation 20, Satan will be thrown into a pit and into the lake of fire and sulfur. There is still coming this fatal crushing blow from the Savior to Satan. And there is still coming our own resurrection and perfect restoration of that joy that was lost in the garden. Revelation 21, 3-5 paints this picture for us. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That sounds a whole lot like what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. This restoration of perfect relationship. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, more, no, be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is joy restored. This is what we have to look forward to. Joy was lost. It is coming again. Ultimate joy that will one day be ours. I want to look finally at the last verse in our reading today. Following God's statements to Satan and then to Adam and then to Eve, these consequences for sin entering God does a remarkable thing for his most treasured creation, and that is that he clothes them. Now, they, if you remember, already had clothes. Upon recognizing their nakedness, they'd sewn together fig leaves to cover themselves. But at the end of this reading in verse 21, it says that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. It's no, it's no small thing that... Their new clothes were made from the skin of an animal. Because we read in God's word that the wages of sin is death. Rather than kill Adam and Eve, God chose substitutionary blood. Because of sin brought about by their, this, his creation, an animal had to be sacrificed in order to clothe them. They could no longer be naked and unashamed before one another. And in order to cover their shame, Sacrificial blood, substitutionary blood had to be shed. In that moment, it was clearly in the Father's line of sight what he would do to fully atone for sin once and for all. It would take great sacrifice. It would, the perfect offering, unblemished by sin that had now permeated his beloved creation. This atonement would require the sacrifice of his one and only Son, when Adam and Eve ate from that forbidden tree, God knew the consequences of their sin. And he had a plan to restore everything to his right design. One day, we will get to live with God again, just like Adam and Eve got to. Because Jesus will crush the head of Satan, we have this hope. We have this hope that can't be stolen, it can't be stilled. The perfect joy that God's first created man and woman had and lost will one day be ours in heaven. That's what the Lord had his eyes set on when he spoke to Satan about Eve's offspring. And this gives us a unique, great hope of this Christian hope. It's uniquely Christian. J.I. Packer wrote this. 
Hope understood not in the weak sense of optimistic whistling in the dark, but in the strong sense of certainty about what is coming because God himself has promised it. Not a weak hope. Not an optimistic whistling in the dark. It's not naive. It's not idealistic. Why? Because this hope doesn't originate with us. It's a strong hope, a certain hope, a hope that has its yes and amen, not in flawed people's hope, the way that we can originate it, but in the perfect man, Jesus. This hope is a promise from the God who was there right at the start and the God who delivers Jesus to us. He delivers on his every word. That's the hope that we get to celebrate this Christmas, this Advent season, and is what we celebrate in communion. We remember that, that God supplied this sacrifice for our sin through the life of Christ, who is fully man and fully God. The Lord atoned for that, that very first sin, very first disobedience, and every sin since then, every sin in the future from now, every sin you and I have ever done, every sin that we're going to do today and tomorrow, every sin of our children, every sin of every generation before us and after, every sin of commission or omission, every sinful thought, word, and deed, every sin of ignorance or will, all of them, Jesus atoned the perfect sacrifice in view of God at that very first moment, absorbed by his son, Jesus, as the perfect, the perfect sacrifice, perfectly innocent, perfectly righteous, so that we could be restored. That's what we get to celebrate in communion. Therefore, if you believe that, take communion with us, celebrate with us. It is good news that we get to celebrate. But if you don't, if you're not there, then please just let the elements pass. We would hope that you would just pray. Pray to this God, this incredible God, who is sovereign, who sent his son so selflessly so we could be in relationship with him. Pray to him, ask him for clarity to help you believe. I'll come back up, I'll lead us through, so hold on to your, those elements of, of communion. The servers are gonna come and pass them around. Uh, the worship team will play just a little bit for us as we prepare our hearts to take communion and celebrate. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, I am feeling so small when I think about how other you are, how sovereign you are, how much clarity you have at any given moment of what's going on, and I thank you. Thank you that we have a God like you that we can trust in with perfect vision who desires relationship with us. Thank you that that you provide that through Christ. Would you help us to rest in that this Christmas Advent season? Rest in the change that you bring, the peace that you bring. Uh, thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.